Hi, and welcome once again to the Many Rules of Film Club. My name is Jeff Yance. I'm the program director at the Loft Cinema, joined once again by my cinematic cohort, occasional filmmaker Heather Lares. Hi, Jeff. And multimedia artist Rusty Boulay Stevenson. Tim Four, good buddy Jeff. This is Rusty Nail. Getting ready to boogie on down with my truck. <laughs> Come back over and out. Come back. Well, nice that you uh, gave us a little CB lingo, Rusty, because today we're going to be looking at that magical year of cinema, 1977, which is also, coincidentally, Heather's birthday year. Yes. Yes. I'll be the big 4 yes. <laughs> So happy, happy to Heather. <laughs> happy, I have happy mixed Heather. emotions about it, but it'll be okay. It will be okay. And we're going to help you through it. And we're going to be talking about what was going on in 77. Uh, one of the things that was going on in 77 was, of course, CB, CB Radio, Citizens Band Radio. Uh, so today we're going to be looking at disco rednecks and galaxies far, far away. <laughs> because, yes. So, uh, so what was happening in 77 culturally? That'll help us set the stage, I think. Um, there was political strife. This was post-Vietnam. Jimmy Carter. Jimmy Carter, post-Watergate. A lot of uh, disillusionment, a lot of paranoia. Dis- thought, distrust of the government. Distrust of the government. That's why Jimmy Carter even gets elected, right? It's because he seems so wholesome and straightforward. That's right. America wanted somebody the exact opposite of a politician like Richard Nixon. Yes. Agreed. That yeah. was definitely some backlash there. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> There was uh, an oil shortage, so there were the long gas lines. People were frustrated. Financially, it's not a great time. Not a great time. There's a, a recession going on. Uh, and I think uh, there was just cultural fatigue. People were tired from the early 70s. And by 1977, they were looking for escape. Definitely. And I think it can't be mentioned enough that the Vietnam War had a huge effect on the country. And, yes. And them wanting to not be a part of that feeling anymore wanting to move Mm -hmm. on and look at other stories and not see those horrible things right yes and also uh there was a sexual liberation there was women's liberation going on uh women entering the workforce in droves uh um becoming okay to be a single woman and to be maybe a sexual woman Uh, there was a lot of drug there was disco which was a big thing Oh, disco. Oh, yes. <laughs> Hedonism at its finest oh, with, yeah. the, with yeah. the beat you can dance to. All the hustle. Well, and cinematically, it's kind of interesting. The year before, Jaws was the first real blockbuster movie and the first movie to ever advertise on television. Yes, in 75, yeah. In 75, That's two right. years before. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. But, yeah. A year before these films were being made. But... Right, right. And it was, it was a summer blockbuster, yes? Summer blockbuster. Yeah, so like the yeah. beginning of the what we have every summer now, the ramp yeah. up to the summer blockbusters. Yes. Well, and that's what would happen in 77. In late May of 1977, Star Wars was released. Yes. May 25th, 1977, which is actually a date that I think if you are really, (laughs) really into Star Wars, which I was, that date is etched into your memory. That I think that date really changed the movie industry. So 77 is a really pivotal year for film. Agreed. Star Wars changed everything, the way movies were released. So Jaws did start the ball rolling, but I think Star Wars really solidified blockbusters, merchandising of blockbusters, tie-in products, um, the whole idea of creating a universe with sequels. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and the idea of well, and people were just w- waiting in line outside around the block waiting to right. get That's right. to see Star Wars. Right. I've seen news feeds of that. In costume. Yeah. Yeah, that idea of owning those characters – your, yourself and becoming them really kind of, I don't know, started, but at least became popular during that time. Yeah. I think maybe Star Trek had been doing yeah. it on television, but yeah. I think Star Wars really got people into trying to participate in the film and yeah. be part of that world they saw. Special effects got ratcheted up. Yes. Yeah. And Star Wars, when you watch it today, is a great film. I mean, I think it did begat some problematic things in the industry, some problematic <laughs> practices. Right. But the film itself, really entertaining, really great. Solid. And, and it's got an interesting pacing that you wouldn't see a film today use. No. Um, it's a lot slower paced, the beginning, but but it's still 
engrossing my eight-year-old. I, I started watching it again a, a week ago, and my eight-year-old, he knows the story. He's known it since he was even smaller, but it's easy for him to watch. Right. It's very easy, young or old, to sit and watch that film. And I forgot, watching it again recently, how much of a B-movie it is. I mean, it oh, really, yeah. it is. it's yeah. really, it's a little, it's a little like an exploitation movie, like from the fifties in a way, the way it's constructed. It's a little, it's a little haphazard. Some of the acting is variable. <laughs> we don't want to call anyone out, but some of the acting, you know. Yeah. Well, and the action, that's that lightsaber battle between Darth Vader and Obi-Wan is slow <laughs> <Right>. and <laughs> really yeah. heavy handed. And yeah. you think like it's going to ramp up. But it does. No, it doesn't. <laughs> but really. for the time, but the, yeah. we loved it. Historically speaking, yes, yes, it really worked, and it's very. It feels emotional. So it, even today, there's a lot of emotion in the film, mm-hmm. oh. and I think that pulls it through. Yes, yes. When you see Luke on the hillside and he's looking out at the two suns, oh. and the music swells, oh, yes. that's it, right? Like that's that sense of adventure and yes. going out and doing more. I, it's really beautiful. There's a lot about Star Wars yeah. that's brilliant. Yes. Uh, and it did sort of reignite, I think, audiences' interest in other worlds and sci-fi again. Um, sci-fi, I think, had been a little bit on the wane maybe since 2001 yeah. in the late 60s. Uh, mm-hmm. But Star Wars reignited. And Star Wars was also not the only big sci-fi film of 77. No. There was also another great film, Close Encounters of the Third Kind, Steven Spielberg. Yeah. Uh, so this was a very different kind of sci-fi movie. If Star Wars was the action sci-fi, Close Encounters was more the intellectual yeah, sci-fi. Yeah, thinking person sci-fi, mm-hmm. for sure. That's how I see it. Yeah, and it's you know early Steven Spielberg, and probably one of the most beautiful films I've ever seen. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, it's yeah. so beautiful, shot by uh, uh, I should have looked this up, Vilmos Sigmund. Yes, I think, mm-hmm. and. Uh, some of the best wide shots I've ever seen. Oh, it's um, beautiful. Yeah. So if you haven't seen it, you should. But it's about, I mean, it, there are definitely scary kind of sci-fi moments um, for sure. It's about two characters, but mostly Richard Dreyfus, who um, experiences a moment while he's going to go do some stuff for work. And he experiences a UFO moment. And mm-hmm. he's changed after that moment. And there's also, there's that storyline. There's a storyline of a mother, a young single mother, um, played by Melinda Dillon, uh, who's great in this. Yes. Um, And her son keeps getting pulled away from her. And it's these UFOs that keep pulling pulling him away from her till eventually they kidnap him. And then there's the third storyline, which is like the government storyline, which um, scientists and government perspective and... Um, Truffaut plays one of the lead scientists and communicators that will communicate with the aliens. So it's a whole, like, a three stories, but they focus on the Richard Dreyfus kind of one as the main mm-hmm. one. And it kind of shows... Uh, I think nowadays, you, th- you know, people kind of make fun of the regular person's story of UFO encounters, but you really see Richard Dreyfus' life change. You see him freak out. And his mind can't handle what's going on. The like, mashed potato mountains. Yes. And, <laughs> when he just oh. keeps on. They're at the dinner table. Yeah. Terry Garr plays his wife great. She plays the very stereotypical 70s housewife. But she's just trying to take care of her kids and hang in there. And here's Richard Dreyfus losing his crap and building a mound out of mashed potatoes. <laughs> and then he then goes on to build this clay structure structure in the middle of his train set, in the living room, all up to this mountain. Which they later find out is this like Devil's Peak? Is it Devil's, Devil's Peak? Tower? And yeah, Wyoming, Devil's Tower. Well, my family used to live near Devil's Tower, so I always yeah you knew wanted what it to was. go there. Yeah. yeah, so I always knew what that was. I mean, it's, it becomes such a vision. And the mother, yes. she draws images of Devil, Devil's Tower. Um, so there's that vision. Um, and so they're both drawn. So once her son gets taken, she encounters Richard Dreyfus along the way because the same. Um, moment where he almost is taken and Richard Dreyfus experiences his UFO moment in his truck, which is a very visual scene mm-hmm. um, and powerful lighting and, and all of that. They meet and they meet, And so they have that connection, the shared experience connection. Then you get, you keep on getting the, the government side and the scientist side. It's kind of cheesy. Like you all, you know, they're very color coded. Steven Spielberg, you know, mm-hmm. there's these ones in the red suits and ones in the white suits <laughs> and ones, that, right. you know, 
And the government wants to hide this from the people, but Retro Drivers is so drawn to it that he has to find his way to the Devil's Tower. And the mother finds her way there, too, because she thinks he must be there. And so they do that. They are on their journey. And, of course, they get kidnapped, you know, finally get arrested by the government. And But along the way, the aliens finally come. And it's not – it is a slow-paced one. It's very much like let's take in the moment and the feeling of, of Richard Drivers kind of going nuts. You yeah. see those scenes where he has that need to build that devil's tower in his living room so much that he's throwing dirt and bricks through the kitchen window. And trees. And trees. Mm-hmm. And his family. I mean, he's just traumatizing his family. And you see that. And that's a lot of sci-fi nowadays wouldn't take that time to show you that. Um, right. That's why this is the thinking person's sci-fi, if you will. Yeah, and interesting in terms of the pacing to compare to Star Wars, which Star Wars is very, at the time, was very, very fast-paced. It was all about the action and the excitement and the fun. Close Encounters was really a family drama. Yes. And for the most part, with aliens involved. In the guise of a sci-fi. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, and also, at a moment, the scene where they finally kidnap her son, the single mother's son, when they're kind of invading her home in every way, like... The lights are dark, but then the lights kind of stream in and things start getting hot and steamy and like scary because you don't know what's coming. Like They're unscrewing the yeah, bolts unscrew- from the grates. Like the, the yeah. scene where the screws come unscrewed and Terrifying. you're like, it's so scary. And you see her face and you see the light come through that dog door. Yeah. And that's how they get him. That's how he the kid sneaks out because he's drawn to it. I really like that was kind of like the thought of being a single mother in general is hard to do all that herself. Here she is, can't save her son from being taken. So it's not just being scared of the aliens. Cause at that point you don't know if the aliens are good or bad. And so you don't know what they're going to do to her son. So mm. here she is and there's no one to help her, you know, so she has to do it herself and she can't find him. And once they take him, he's gone and it's upon her to find him. And so they don't have lots of shots, but they'll see her, they'll show her over a few months like living in a hotel and looking for her son and that kind of thing. Um, So, yeah, it's a very – it's family on both sides. You have the nuclear family with Terry Garr and Richard Dreyfuss with the full – you know, and they're a mess. And then you have the single mom and her just trying to hold on to her son. It's an interesting view of 70s family life, if you will. Um, Right. So I thought that was also something important to think about. And very Spielberg in that the child in the film looks at this alien invasion – positively yes as sort of a wonderful opportunity whereas the adults are frightened right because spielberg is often on the side of the kids and the wonderment of being a child and yeah um it was nice to see like this perspective of aliens though because later on as the years progress i mean so it goes and comes and goes like before in the 50s 60s aliens kind of were treated as the bad other because they were always wanting to wreak havoc upon earth commies yes Mm -hmm. communist invasion (laughs) and now there's this close encounters where they're still not sure but the government doesn't quite freak out they come out to let's communicate and it's all it really is about communicating with them and finding a way the movie opens with francois truffaut teaching a bunch of people sign language their version of sign language to kind of communicate with people who don't speak verbally the same language so it's interesting thoughtful piece about communication as well really is you know? that's the theme that kind of runs throughout right. there's at the be- near the beginning they they're in sonora mexico yeah. and they're speaking spanish but the movie doesn't even provide you subtitles my son and i were watching that together mm-hmm. on our friday sci-fi horror night and and we both knew what was being said mm-hmm. but they i mean spielberg purposefully doesn't give you subtitles there he wants you to figure out via context and that happens throughout the movie i think yeah yeah yeah, and Bob Balaban plays the translator for Francois Truffaut's mm. French translator, and he does a great job, but he also has his own personal interest in it and his, like, ideas of stuff. And and so there's that level of communication as well. Yeah, and it also intersects, since we're talking about the culture of 77, I think it really intersects with the kind of cultural fascination with aliens. There was fascination with aliens, Bermuda Triangle, Bigfoot, Loch Ness Monster. There was a lot of... The In Search of series with Leonard Nimoy. Absolutely. Oh, I forgot about that. We were looking for things beyond, I think, because we were so tired of what was happening on Earth in our reality. We were looking beyond Earth for something better. Yeah, Yeah, because that's what we always do. We don't want to fix what's here. We don't want to fix what's here. Let's let's look at (laughs) outer space. Yeah, and I think that's what Spielberg was doing. Like, can we find something better somewhere else? Yeah. Well, and 
I mean, you still don't really know what the aliens are up to once you get on the spaceship, but at least in the version I watched, but you don't... They seem friendly. Yeah, they seem friendly, yeah. and they seem to have some sense of humanity, even though they're aliens, you know? Well, they so. like music. Right. Right? Yes. Universal language. The yes. universal yes. language yes. of music is, is one of the ways that the, the humans yes. and the aliens find a way to communicate yes. is, right. is through tones. And right. they don't blast us with ray guns. Right. Yeah. yeah. So right there, I, I trust them. <laughs> They're not coming to take over Earth or, you know, yeah. kill us all off. So it was very Steven Spielberg. But, I, you know, a few of my young filmmaker friends have criticized Spielberg for being too clean. But... It's such a beautiful movie, and it stands up like most, like a lot of 70s movies that don't. Yeah, I watched a lot of movies from 1977 mm-hmm. to prepare for this, and, and Close Encounters is one of the films that really stands mm-hmm. up. It's still, it's a slower pace, like a lot of the films from the earlier 70s, um, but but it holds up in the way that it looks and the way that it deals with an issue. It also, the, the theme of mental health is definitely mm-hmm. in this. Um, mm-hmm. Richard Dreyfus. It, you could think that he's going crazy for sure and when he's throwing bricks into his house and dirt and sapling trees and all this stuff. Um, and that's that's what his wife thinks. But, I mean, I, I think that that's a really interesting aspect of this film is that it kind of looks at mental health. Yes, and I think in relation to big blockbusters today, Close Encounters really looks almost like an art film. Yes. yes. And the way it's looking at humanistic issues and dealing with the mental health issues and the yeah. breakdown of the family, but yeah. using the sci-fi framework. Uh, and I'm, I don't know that Spielberg intended it. I, I think at the time, just in 70s filmmaking was very different. Yeah. Commercial filmmaking was a very different proposition than it is mm-hmm. now. And you could get away with injecting themes like that into big entertainment. Yeah. Yeah, no, that's right. Well, because there was so such a less amount of films coming out and... Yes. Too, so you could kind of take advantage of that. And less of a reliance on uh, special effects. Yeah. Which is one of the legacies of Star Wars, I think, is that we needed more special effects yeah. in films. <laughs> well, and the, the special effects of, of In Close Encounters are really great, though. The, the, the it's Whoever beautiful. created, yeah. I can't remember his name, but whoever created the Doug spaceship. Doug Trumbull, I think. Oh, the spaceship is so beautiful. If you have a chance really to is. see Close Encounters, like on a big screen, you really should. It's a beautiful design, and you can tell that other movies in the future lent some of their ideas from what that spaceship is. Yes, I would say avoid if you can. Close Encounters, the special edition, <laughs> and I'm not. I don't know if everyone knows this, but there was an, another version that was released about two years after Close Encounters hit mm. theaters in '79, I think, where you got to go onto the spaceship at the end and you got to see what was inside the spaceship. Mm. Which I would have been so mad if I saw that version. Yeah, and it was that ruins it. It was literally Studio Fifty Four. There was <laughs> there was like flashing lights and disco balls, and it looked like there were aliens dancing in the windows. And that's well, they like music. They they do well, like true. music. That's a good point. Um, but that I mean, part of the best part of this is that you don't get to see their world. There's or, mystery, right? You yes. still really don't know what they're doing with the humans. Who knows? Once they got off the ship, that right. those old, you know, World War II, you know, vets would be like saying bad things. Yeah. You know, yeah, yeah. you never yeah. know. And just one more thing about Close Encounters in terms of it being a '70s film. It ends. I don't think I'm going to spoil anything because I think we know Richard Dreyfus goes into right. the spaceship. He leaves his family. He leaves yes. his children and his wife and decides, I would rather be in outer space with these aliens than yeah. with my family, which you would never see today. No. And you wouldn't, like, it felt like that was the right thing for him to do in the oh, movie. Oh, it was the completely Because right he just never felt, it never felt like he fit in with his family. Mm-hmm. But I don't think that would ever be a main storyline in a movie nowadays, or no. at least a popular movie nowadays. No. Not family affirming enough. Yeah. No, I would say no. Exactly. Yeah, and I don't think Spielberg would even do that now, right? I mean, I, I agree. I, I tend to think he would have the family either go with him or or something would happen. Yeah, to... let's go colonize. Yeah, let's go colonize. Well, interesting. That's before Spielberg had children, and oh. he was a young a young man. I think he was in his twenties, maybe yeah, early thirties at that point. I think he didn't start having children until ET in the oh, yeah, early eighties, yeah. and you can see his whole attitude about kids and family shift. Yeah. That's a good point. Yeah. Um, so, yeah. So, great film. Two great yeah, sci-fi films. Out. Yeah. Well, I think it's interesting, too, just to point out, like, Star Wars, you start the whole movie off with seeing the ship going above you overhead. Everybody talks about what an amazing scene that was and how it changed movies for them. 
Close Encounters, that's how the movie ends, Mm -hmm. is with the ship going overhead. And I think that that's an interesting pair of bookends for those two films. And it kind of shows the difference in tone for them, where Star Wars was... Let's just say that Close Encounters was kind of the thinking person's sci-fi movie, Mm -hmm. right? That you could put off this great shot to the end, Mm -hmm. where Star Wars, you wanted to do that, a big bang right at the beginning. Right. Right that's just going to show you we're in for adventure and excitement. And Close Encounters is a drama that I feel like not enough people see today, Agreed. honestly. It's and I, I'm glad that yeah. we're talking about it here because I had never watched it all the way through until getting ready for this podcast, and I loved watching it. Yeah. I think more people should see Close it's, Encounters. It's hard to think of a Steven Spielberg movie as being underrated and undervalued. Yeah. Because <laughs> that was a huge film. But, but it is. I, but I think, think it's it one of his I think most underrated yes. nowadays. Well, yes. and let's real quickly, I think that this is important, is um, look at the movies that made money that year. The top film was Star Wars. It Clearly. became the highest grossing film of all time at the at the time in mm-hmm. 1977. It grossed over $300 million in 1977 oh, dollars. Yeah. That's a lot of money. Number three was Close Encounters and did $116 million. Yeah, not too shabby. No, no. No, But at, at the time, that's enormous. Yeah. That's enormous. Now there are many films that have budgets that size. Right. right. But but for the time, and, and for a movie that was so big, it really kind of, and I wouldn't say lost to, to modern audiences. They don't know it entirely. But I, I don't feel, certainly, it's not as big as Star Wars. Oh, yeah. It's not as talked about. It's not got a franchise built around it. It doesn't have toys. Hard to do no. a sequel. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, guess I you did have you Close Encounters uh, trading cards, though. What? Yeah. That's awesome. Yeah, I had, I had uh, no Close idea. Encounters action figures. Oh, wow. Wait, what? There were toys? Yes. Oh, how did I not know this? Richard Dreyfus, you could have your action figure <laughs> walking into a light bulb. Like, oh, you're going to get outer space. Put him in your pile of mashed potatoes <laughs> at dinner. <laughs> <laughs> now I want to check those out. Yes. They're, yeah, they're out there. Um, so interestingly, the number two highest grossing film of 1977 uh, was an entirely different kind of film, which indicated, I think, another subculture, which was becoming a major culture in the 70s. Absolutely. Which is sort of the redneck trucker <laughs> <laughs> subculture. Uh, Smokey and the Bandit with Burt Reynolds and Sally Field. And since it's rednecks, of course, I'll talk about it, I guess. Um, That's right. Uh, uh, yeah, Smokey and the Bandit <laughs> made $126 million in 1977. It was enormous. I remember, I mean, it was the talk outside of Star Wars, right? I mean, it was, it was, everybody was talking about it. Yes. It was a yeah. big deal. My parents were not big moviegoers, but they were talking about Smokey and the Bandit. And I, Burt Reynolds is in it. Sally I mean, he Fields. He was a star then. He was the big yeah. male star of yeah. that whole decade. Yeah. yeah. Fast talking, I guess. Although if you watch it today, he doesn't seem nearly as quick witted no. in that as, as I guess he did in 1977. <laughs> Um, well, he, like, special effects were sort of topped later on. Yes, that's like, it. <laughs> people build upon the Burt Reynolds persona later. That's, that's exactly, yeah. they, were, they yeah. really did. Yeah. Um, and then Jackie Gleason is Smokey, the yeah. police officer who's after him, mm-hmm. because unbeknownst to Burt Reynolds' character, the bandit, that's his handle, mm-hmm. um, he, he has picked up uh, Jackie Gleason's son's would-be bride, Sally Field character, who mm-hmm. ran off and got picked up in the Trans Am by Burt Reynolds, and and he is running diversion. The the reason he's in front of the truck, he's driving ahead in a Trans Am of a of a semi carrying illegal Coors Light beer. Um, <laughs> oh, so you good. know, yes, delicious. <laughs> um, and well, that Trans Am like played a huge. I mean, I want to know how many. Cars oh. they sold oh, because right. of that. Trans Am sales through the roof yeah. after yeah. this movie. Well, that is the late 70s car, right? Is yes. the Trans Am yes. with the T top and T top Trans Am with the actual bird painted yep. on the hood. Yeah, with the actual bird on the hood. Oh, That's right. It's so good. That's right. And so so Burt Reynolds' character, the bandit, is is using his CB to run ahead and be diversion to police for his buddy who's running the the alcohol, the illegal Coors Light to Georgia, mm. um, right? And so he's got to go through all the all the southern states, Texas, and they go through Arkansas. It, it, their route is kind of circuitous, it seems to me. Mm-hmm. Um, but they go through Alabama logic, and Mississippi. Logic gaps and smoking the bandit? <laughs> <laughs> um, but so they do. They, they take this kind of weird route but get to Georgia, and they're doing it in the fastest time ever. 
Um, so there's kind of a bet that they can do it in that amount of time. And so they're going 100, 120 miles an hour um, through these states. And Burt Reynolds is fast talking as well. And they're trying to outrun Jackie Gleason, who leaves Texas. He's uh, he's left his his precinct or his jurisdiction, and he's just chasing him wherever. So he's really acting illegally. Um, and other police officers call him on it, but he doesn't yeah. care. He's Jackie Gleason, right? Um, and it's an interesting role for him. I I have to say, I I had never seen this movie all the way through. Um, I don't like it. <laughs> well, yeah. Well, I will say I liked it as a kid, but I doubt that I would like it now, and I have not watched it as a grown-up. It made me mad sometimes. Yeah. I wanted to throw things. I like it. I I think it's funny as a cultural artifact. And yes. Jerry Reed has the Basset Hound in the in the oh, semi truck. Yeah. Semi. I forgot about that. It's got a lot George. of George. 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 Yeah. Um, and I'm trying to think about what this was saying about the 70s. And they, we know that Jimmy Carter was president at this time from the South, from Georgia. And I feel like there was some sort of resurgence in the late 70s of Southern culture. And Leonard Jake Skinner was really big at that point. Uh, and so I feel like this was kind of dovetailing with the political movement at that time, where we were politically. No, I think you're right. And it was totally mindless escapism, which yes. you know we were looking for at mm-hmm. that point. And it's- Still are. It's got some right. funny moments, I guess, is the best I think I, I could say about it. It's interesting, though, as a cultural artifact, all the CB lingo that they're using, that mm-hmm. CBs were so big. I remember my dad having one in his car. Oh, yes, we had one. Yes. Um, and it was like kind of the early Internet in some ways, in chat right. rooms. Um, people had these whole – I mean, we, we talk about emojis as a language mm-hmm. – CB lingo was a language. I mean, people, there are times in that movie where I don't quite know what they're saying exactly um, because they're using the (laughs) CB lingo. I mostly figure it out, and there's contextual reasons you can figure it out, but it's not a thinking person's movie. I'm not not saying that it takes a lot of thought. But but I think it is interesting that, that we were really keyed in on this version of communication. Mm-hmm. That yep. that now has gone by the wayside by and large. I mean, CB stands for Citizens Band. It, you don't hear about it. People don't have towers on their houses anymore no, by and large. No. Every once in a while when I see one, I'm like, wow, is that a throwback? That's so strange <laughs> seeing a tower on next yeah. to somebody's house. Yeah. Um, there's another uh, CB-related movie by Jonathan Demme from 1977 that I liked a lot better mm-hmm. um, called Citizens Band. And... It's a movie about a small town where everybody's kind of hooked onto the CBs and and they're just trying to figure out their way in life. It's a it's a real um lot of an ensemble cast that's really nice. Um it's really well done. I when I watched it I kind of fell in love with it actually. And even the CB lingo in that is a little harder to decipher at times. And yes. there yeah. are multiple stories going on, one about a truck driver who's got two wives, we find out, and um, and a, a woman on the side, uh, Hot Coffee. Hot Coffee? Yes. <laughs> oh, I remember That's Hot Coffee. Handle? That's her handle, is yes. Hot Coffee. Yeah. And the trucker, the trucker mm-hmm. convinces her, he's like, wait, you can do a better job with your, you could do your job better as... I, helper to the truckers, I guess, was her job. Mm. Um, <laughs> but you could do your job better yeah. if you if if I bought you a, an RV. Oh, with okay. your and now you can travel oh, around Lord. and follow oh, the yes. truckers. Oh, yes. Um, but it's a and and then there's there's a character <laughs> who's going around. There's a channel. I think it's Channel Nine in this on the CB world where it's for emergencies mm. and people are using that channel illegally. Against FCC mm. rules. And so he goes through his town and hunts down these people. Uh, one's a Nazi. <laughs> um, and so he pulls the Nazi's tower down. That's cool. But it's a comedy. I support that. But it's a comedy. Uh, <laughs> another one is, uh, what, there's a young boy who's trying to be some Romeo and find women. Mm-hmm. And so he's he's on the Channel See, 9 as did. well. It doesn't matter the decade. It doesn't matter the decade. <laughs> They'll use the technology the G- to get yes. what they need. It's yep. pretty funny yeah. stuff. It, it goes right along with, with yeah. what you're talking about with the internet, Heather. Yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah, so I, I really enjoy Citizens Band. It's a fairly hard movie to find. Yeah, fairly obscure. Yeah, but it feels like a Robert Altman film. If he had made a film about CBs, I yes. think it would have been this film. 
Yeah, no, that's right. The plethora of characters, and he actually uses the CB technology kind of in a in almost an intellectual way. It's about these people not connecting. Yeah, and they do so through this anonymous kind of communication technology, which is very internet esque. Yeah, which is very prescient for I think yeah. where we're at now, and yeah, for where we are now. Well, and I, I it's so lovingly done too. Mm. You know, I mean, it's really fun. It's a it's a comedy mostly, but there's also um, a story about a young man and his father, um, and the father is really grumpy, and doesn't he's mean to everybody in real life. But when he's on his CB, he's super happy and charming and friendly, and he he's trying mm. to help people. Mm. And it's really interesting, that dichotomy of, of, yeah, not being able to communicate in real life, but being able to do it anonymously that's brought out in Citizens Band. That's It does feel like an Altman film, I think. Yeah. Not quite enough, quite enough Coors Light and Transams to really make it pop for the American public <laughs> in did, 1977. It did not make a hundred million dollars. No, it was a little bit of a smaller film. <laughs> a little bit. The Bandit. A little bit. Yeah, um, but certainly interesting, of indicative of where we were at at the time. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. And I think it it sheds a light onto this culture that's kind of lost now, mm-hmm. except that there's such a strong parallel to the internet. Yeah, agreed. Right, begging for rediscovery. I oh think. yeah! Yes. Oh, Citizens yes. Band definitely well, you made me want to watch it. So. Yeah, <laughs> I, I highly recommend it here, and, and I, I do just... not recommend Smoking the Bandit. Give that one a miss. <laughs> Let it you're, go. You're fine. Everyone's already seen that. Yeah, you've probably seen guess. it. You probably seen I'm it. Sorry, Except but... for youngins nowadays. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you can give it a miss. It's okay to miss that one. Although I have to admit, when Burt Reynolds was having his estate sale a couple of years ago, if you remember, he was selling mm-hmm. off all of his yeah. personal belongings. He was selling the Trans Am. Oh, damn. Wow. And the jacket, the baseball satin oh, baseball wow. jacket. What about the hat? And the, the cowboy hat also. I have to admit, I watched the auction happening. <laughs> and I, I really did. wanted to bid on at least the jacket. Uh-huh. Could not afford it. I'm sure. I would I say like, people yeah. went berserk. Mm-hmm. So clearly it still strikes a chord with, with people. Folks, yeah. yeah, with some folks. Well, and it did spawn two sequels. Two sequels, Yes. Yeah, so it was a it franchise. Got that going for it. <laughs> I, I can't say much about it. I, it was a movie, and I, I watched it, and I'm glad that I saw it. And it does give some insight into 1977, and that's what this episode's about. That's right. Yeah, In so forty years. Forty years. So if we, you know, we've <laughs> don't. Oh, Heather. Heather's gonna cry. <laughs> no, I'm. No, I will not. This I'm is just a beginning. To be forty. Yes. But it is weird. Yes. That it's, that's all I have to say about it. Well, since we've looked at uh, outer space, aliens, and rednecks, and truck drivers, we should maybe also look at another important element of 1977, which was disco. Yes. Uh, you remember disco, Heather. I do. Yes. Even though I was just you were just an barely infant, born. But it but seeped into your it soul. It seeped in everyone. Yeah. There's some good disco, but not much. <laughs> <laughs> but disco movies, now, I'm a big fan of Saturday Night Fever. Yes. Uh, which was gigantic that was looking at my list of top grocers that was the number five top grossing film of 1977 uh there were a lot of disco movies it was a short-lived phenomenon yeah uh saturday night fever was really i think the movie credited with bringing disco to the mainstream um bringing it to the suburbs because before that it was sort of a that's true it was a it was a kind of a gay thing it was an african-american thing inner city thing thing. But here was like it was playing, being played in malls and Chuck E. Cheese's across mm-hmm. the country. Uh, so Saturday Night Fever, though, I think, is not the camp fest that people think it's going to be if they haven't seen it. It is about mm-hmm. disco, but I always say disco is the MacGuffin in Saturday Night Fever. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's actually, if you want a funny disco movie, watch Thank God It's Friday. Yes, highly recommend I Thank recommend God It's Friday. <laughs> Saturday Night Fever, though, is actually very dark. Uh, it's very gritty. Uh, it's a story about Tony Monero, played by John Travolta, a 19-year-old living in Brooklyn, uh, who is desperate to get out, dead-end job, doesn't like his parents, no prospects, dreams of crossing the Brooklyn Bridge into Manhattan and maybe living a better life. And the only way he can think to do that is by dancing at the 2001 Odyssey Disco in Bay Ridge, Brooklyn, where he lives. A dance-off. Having a dance-off, maybe winning the prize. And again, we don't know how that's... Disco is probably not a marketable skill in Manhattan. That's going to get him a great job. <laughs> no. But that's what he... But he's really good at it. 
And John Travolta was a great dancer. And the dance sequences in this movie are just out of this world. Just really yeah, amazing. They're yeah, they're fun. Yeah, really amazing. Uh, but really, the movie is about class issues. He dreams of a, being in a different class. It's about um, ethnic and racial tensions in the 70s in New York. There's Hispanic gangs in this movie who battle the Italian gangs, and they have problems with the African-American gangs in the film. Uh, and there's a lot of drug use and um, it's a, difficult for the women in the film to see much of a future for themselves. Uh, there's a great supporting character named Annette, who's sort of like the tag-along woman in this gang, this mm-hmm. Italian gang that Tony Monero leads. And really all she can think to do is sleep with all of these guys and hope, pray that she gets pregnant oh, yeah. so that one of them will marry her and then maybe she'll have a better life. But she's hoping to be Tony's dance partner. She wants to be his dance partner, but then when they start rehearsing, she offers him some condoms, saying, "Well, what about these? Can we? Can Can't we, do we that? go make it? <laughs> can we make? Can I make it with you? Can oh, I make God. it with you?" And he doesn't want to make it with her, <laughs> because of course he has his eye on Stephanie, who is another young woman who has escaped Brooklyn and is working in Manhattan uh, at a record label. Mm. So she is sort of the paragon of getting out of Brooklyn. Yeah. So he sees her as his ticket out. That American dream vibe. Of, exactly. You know. A true romance, Yeah, really. Um, but it's really it's really an interesting movie, and it was originally to be directed by John Albertson, who directed Rocky. Oh. And he then passed on it, and it went to John Badham, who was actually a really good director. He did War Games and Blue Thunder and a lot of movies after this. Uh, but it's a very 70s movie in that you think the big dance contest, he's going to win this dance contest. It's going to lead to him fulfilling all of his dreams. But being the 1970s, mm. it's a downer. Yeah. Uh, he wins, but he doesn't win, really. Um, it's more realistic than people, I think, think it's going to be when they start watching it. Exactly. When if all you've seen are the highlights, I mean, we've all seen John Travolta walking down the street. Dun, dun, dun. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, big shoes and the tight pants. And, yeah. yeah, the polyester. That is yeah. in there. It's it's all in there. But but that's not the movie. The movie is a much grittier, darker piece than that. Mm-hmm. And and everybody thinks of the dancing, right? It's parodied in airplane and the finger in the right. air. White the white three piece suit. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You do think of that, and that also is in there. But but the movie isn't that at all. It's so much more than that. It's a much better film than that would be. Yes. Yeah. And this, of course, came out around the same time. So Rocky was also a movie that did not... It was a movie about a competition that ended on a low note. Rocky doesn't win. A lot of people forget that Rocky actually loses. A lot of people forget that. Oh, my God. He loses. (laughs) The Bad News Bears came out right before this, and they lose the big championship at the end. Like That was a theme in 70s cinema is that Mm -hmm. everyone was a loser. Yeah. (laughs) Well, Annie Hall, Woody Allen doesn't end up with... They break up. Yeah. Yeah. They're just not made for each other, and... It was, yeah. I think all these films are very reflective of that time of how disillusioned people yeah. felt at that time. Yeah, disillusioned and disconnected and and looking for something better, but learning it's not possible. Right, <laughs> really. except for the bandit. Well, yes. Yeah, especially... Except for the bandit, exactly, yeah. Which is why the sequel to and Saturday Night Fever owned Star Wars. The sequel to Saturday Night Fever did not work. Staying well, Alive, you know, if you've seen that. I think people nowadays, because so much time has passed, confuse Staying Alive with Saturday Night Fever. And they think that yeah. when they're watching Saturday Night Fever, they're going to get Staying Alive. But staying Alive not, is hilarious. Yes, yes. It, but it's not happening. You're not getting that no. with Saturday Night Fever. No. no. And in the sequel, of course, Tony does become a no. big success as a dancer in Manhattan on Broadway in yeah. this ridiculous show. Yeah. <laughs> Um, you can make money doing disco. Yeah. Apparently, you can. Clearly, yes. <laughs> I was like, "What is I watching? What's going on?" Oh, it's insane. Directed by Sylvester Stallone, mm-hmm. it's just a mess. Which is so not okay. I don't it's know. not okay. But it was the '80s. So right. That was '83, so it was a much different time. Yeah. And people did not go for it, mm-hmm. and and that was kind of the end of the franchise right there. Amen. <laughs> <laughs> but do see it. Um, if nothing else, the the music is yeah, amazing. Great. Number the second highest selling soundtrack of all time if you go to a thrift store and look for <laughs> vinyl which i do you will i guarantee you will always find a copy of saturday night fever oh, that's uh, true 
Frampton Comes Alive <laughs> and the Star is Born soundtrack. Everybody oh, had those nice. three albums mm-hmm. in the yeah. 70s, and they all got rid of them, and well, they're there at your, thr- your local Goodwill waiting mm-hmm. for you. Uh, and just one more interesting thing about Saturday Night Fever, that I first discovered it because the studio, Paramount, actually re-edited Saturday Night Fever into a PG, oh. kid-friendly version because the movie was... They, so they took out all the cursing, the sex, the nudity, oh, the drugs. Are so horrible. <laughs> but they wanted all the kids who were listening to the soundtrack to have That's the opportunity money, to see money. the film. And it wasn't until later that I saw the real version. I, I couldn't believe it. Mm. Like, this movie is so dirty. I wonder how many people only saw that version and That's never what I saw the, the And so they don't know that it's a gritty. Version. Yes. Oh, that makes sense now. Think about it. Oh. So there's a PG and an R. And I, I can't think of another film that's done that. That they've re-edited for kid, like kid friend, like a really dirty no. adult film. Yeah. No, because there's a lot of weird sex in Saturday mm-hmm. Night Fever. Yes, mm-hmm. weird, degrading, uncomfortable yes. sex. Not female positive in any Not, way. No, shape or form. no, it's no. The 70s, so. and it was pre-AIDS, so it's very free, rampant, like, free, rampant sex. sex. With everyone and no. Lots condom. of homophobia too. Yes, lots of racial epitaphs being yeah. thrown around b- b- by these gangs. Somewhat and... racist. Hmm. Um. It's good though. It's a it's a good movie, and I, I really recommend it. I enjoyed watching it. Yeah. Um, for this podcast, I really enjoyed it. And there are some scenes that on the bridge. The bridge is such a great metaphor for Tony for life. Whether he'll yeah. cross the bridge and go to the new life, or if he'll stay just drinking on mm-hmm. the bridge with his buddies and throwing life away. Um, I, I think it's a really interesting. There's some. There's yeah. an interesting metaphor there with the bridge. Yes, and you know some of them are going to plummet to their deaths off the bridge because it's a metaphor. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I don't yeah. want to spoil it, but maybe some of them do. Yeah, <laughs> there are some harrowing <laughs> scenes on that bridge that make me want to close my eyes. Yes, it was clear that those were really actors crawling around on the Brooklyn Bridge. Yes, yes, there were no special effects then. <laughs> no, at that it was point. scary. It was terrifying. Insurance wouldn't just go crawl over there. Just don't let Travolta do it. We got to keep him. He he has to do Grease. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, So just one other film that I just wanted to mention uh, in brief, because I think it's an interesting companion to Saturday Night Fever, is uh, Looking for Mr. Goodbar, which came out the same year. Uh, Also sort of the dark flip side to the sexual liberation movement that was going on in the 70s. Uh, So this was based on a true crime case from the mid-70s, a young woman uh, who was a teacher at a school for the deaf, she taught young deaf children, uh, also was a singles bar cruiser, and she ended up picking up a very dangerous man who murdered her. Uh, became a big, famous case. Uh, then there was a novel by Judith Rossner um, based on the case that was very popular. And then they made the film version uh, starring Diane Keaton as the teacher, Um, slash singles bar cruiser and this was the same year she did Annie Hall and looking for Mr. Goodbar came out after Annie Hall so by that point she had become America's sweetheart so I think it was very difficult for people to accept America's sweetheart uh, in these very graphic sexual situations Uh, but it's a really interesting film in terms of what the way Hollywood reacted to the women's liberation movement. Yeah. Uh, she's murdered fairly brutally by Mr. Goodbar, whoever that is, uh, This someone she picks up at a bar. Uh, and there's been a lot of talk over the years that she's being punished for being a sexual woman. Right. Uh, so give, they give her a certain amount of freedom. So she goes to the bar. She hooks up with guys. Right. She's single. She she's has fine. a job. She's cool. Yeah. Living by herself. She no reads biggie. Camus at the right. singles bars, <laughs> which attracts guys to no end. Right. Of course. Oh god. <laughs> <laughs> I've never been to that yeah. bar. No. So many hipsters these days yes. would be all over. <laughs> but yes, but, I get it. I mean, it, to me, if I saw that now, it would be like, oh yeah, they're totally punishing her for mm. being a, a sexual woman and being free and on her own. But at, at that time, you think, well, at least they're portraying a single woman who has a job and can take care of herself to right. a degree. Like, right. You know. And she has the choice to become promiscuous. Right. That's her choice right. in the film. Right. Uh, she gave does... her a choice. That's probably the biggest thing you can That's say about, about the late 70s and women. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so 
both progressive and very reactionary at the same time, which is makes it an interesting film. Uh, Richard Gere's first movie, she picks him up, or one of his first movies, mm. uh, she picks him up in a bar, and he does this kind of nude dance, and or I think he's wearing a jock strap yeah. in her apartment, and trying to seduce her with a switchblade knife. Mm-hmm. <laughs> She's into some dicey stuff. She's into some kind of rough trade, I mm-hmm. think they call it. Uh, but he, but he's great in the film, really menacing. Um, not the one I will say who ends up murdering her. Let's mm-hmm. leave that as a surprise. Uh, how that goes down, um, but it's a it's a definite product of its era. Uh, it's kind of hard to see now, although we just discovered it is on YouTube. Mm-hmm. But it never came out on DVD. It's not on Netflix. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's one I'm going to check out now, though. Yeah, yeah, it's real interesting. It was nominated for at least a couple of Oscars. Yeah, um, and it made it made good money. Like it was, a, and it became part of the cultural lexicon. Yeah, Mr. Goodbar became synonymous at that point. To describe women who were looking for dangerous sex. I need Are you looking for Mr. Goodbar? <laughs> yes. <Yeah. laughs> for <laughs> some like what reason, I need to. And it's also a candy bar, so right. how delicious is that? Yeah. It's rough sex. It's candy. It's chocolate. Mm-hmm. It's peanuts. It's Diane Keaton. Mm-hmm. It's everything. It's great. So. <laughs> but traumatizing. But traumatizing. Yes. Uh, much like the 1970s. Very good point. Thanks for bringing that around. So maybe that's where we can sort of wrap up our journey through 1977. Uh, There was a lot going on and a lot of interesting films speaking to the culture. Uh, And of course, again, Heather was born that year. So she was part of the whole tumultuous year, which was 77. I won't go into that. (laughs) But I will say that going through all the movies, you know, going through the list for this podcast, I was very impressed with what was on there. So I encourage you to check out some 1977 or 70s movies, whatever. Mm-hmm. But this year in particular was pretty awesome. So, well, Yeah, I, I loved Three Women, the Robert Altman film. Yes. I'm not going to talk about that here, but that's an amazing film. That's one of my top five from that year yeah. is mm-hmm. Three Women. I also watched House, a Japanese film for this podcast that's way ahead of its time. It's on Filmstruck. You can find it. Oh, yeah. and. Yeah. Uh, one of my favorite horror films, Suspiria by Dario Argento, came out in 77. Uh, Really amazing. Underrated uh, John Frankenheimer film, Black Sunday. It's a great movie. Yes. About a blimp piloted by terrorists that's going to ram into the Super Super Bowl. Bowl. It's really good. Really underrated. All the movies I looked at for 1977, very few lists or anything mentioned Black Sunday. And it's a very strong film. It's It's John John Frankenheimer, so of course you're going to get some really good some some really good political action in it, and I, yeah. I, it's a great film. Yeah, and a yeah. film that I'm very fond of that I don't I don't know if it's a good film, but I have nostalgic feelings for is Oh God. Yes, yeah, I which am was, totally nostalgic. Which was a huge oh fun film in '77. Yeah. Um, George Burns yeah, plays a, God coming back to good Earth. Childhood memories of that. Yeah, and wa- and then wanting to watch the sequels. Oh, <laughs> Oh God, you yeah, devil! devil yeah. Oh yeah, yes. The yes. other movie I watched was Capricorn One, which is great if you like thrillers. Like fun ensemble, like I think this is what you would call an early ensemble thriller action movie. Check out Capricorn yeah. One, which is like a conspiracy theory about landing in Mars, NASA landing in Mars. It's a great watch. Has Elliot Gould and James Brolin and uh, Brendan Vaccaro. It's definitely and OJ worth... Simpson. Oh yeah, sorry, my bad. <laughs> an actual good, yeah, and it wasn't like a fine performance. Yeah, it was a fine performance yeah. by him. Yeah. So yeah, I recommend Capricorn actor. One. Mm-hmm. He was a decent actor. Not a person, but actor, yeah. <laughs> not a person. Yeah. Um, you know, The Rescuers came out. Disney put out The Rescuers mm-hmm. in 1977. That would kind of bring in a renaissance for animation. Mm-hmm. Um, Disney had kind of fallen on harder times, and they weren't making that much great stuff. The Rescuers kind of turned that around mm. um, and started getting kids going back to Disney movies. And, and, I, and I think that that kind of foreshadowed what would happen in the 80s and 90s uh, with animation right. And, right. and it coming back and being such a huge deal now. And the Rescuers is still good. My it's still a sweet little Rescuers. movie. It's great. Many Adventures of Winnie it's... the Pooh came out that year as oh, well. Oh, boy. Yes. Yeah, and yeah. that's sweet storytelling. Yeah. yeah. So there's a ton there's from 1977. Obviously, we barely mentioned uh, Annie Hall, the exactly. Oscar-winning film from that yeah, year. Yeah, the Best Picture Oscar winner. Diane Keaton won the Oscar for that. Um, Goodbye Girl with Richard Dreyfus. Mm-hmm. This was the year of Richard Dreyfus and yes. Close Encounters and Goodbye Girl coming yeah. off of Jaws. He was everywhere at mm-hmm. that point. Uh, yeah, so it's it's fun looking back on a, 
a year and kind of seeing what that year said about the industry in America and yeah. audiences. And 77 is one of the most interesting, I think. Really was. Yeah. I'll do one last one, and it's oh. Pumping Iron. Pumping With Iron. Arnold Schwarzenegger yeah. and Please. Lou Ferrigno. Yes. Like, it's yeah. a little interesting documentary um, about bodybuilding when Arnold Schwarzenegger was Mr. Olympia. Um, and he'd been like the number one bodybuilder seven years in a row. And you follow Lou Ferrigno as he's trying to dethrone him. Uh, it's really interesting. And it sheds a lot of light into who Arnold Schwarzenegger is and how he could really get people to do. He could manipulate people uh, in a really he was so charismatic. It was easy for him to get people to do what. He yes. wanted them to do, and it's really an interesting documentary. Yeah. I think that that stands up. That doesn't feel like it's necessarily 1977, the way that it's put together and the way the story's no. told. It feels ahead of its time, even though you look at it, and Arnold Schwarzenegger's very young, and so obviously yeah. it's not 2007. And he was clearly destined for something more than being a bodybuilder. Yes. Based on that film. That's very so obvious when yes. you watch this movie. Yes. So Pumping Iron is one to check out, too. Yeah. And much like Bigfoot, Loch Ness Monster, Bermuda Triangle, bodybuilders were endlessly fascinating to us in 77. <laughs> a mystery true. to be discovered yeah, and like, explored. they're like, what are these humans doing? <laughs> <laughs> so thanks, Rusty and Heather. That was very entertaining. Thanks, and, Jeff. Yeah, 77. Check Tim it out. Four, good buddy. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> Gotta bring it back around. Uh, so... Uh, Please do remember to check us out on Facebook and on iTunes. And if you go on iTunes, please rate us because that really helps us. Uh, check out our website, uh, themanyrulesoffilmclub.com. Player FM, Stitcher. Player FM, We're Stitcher. All those places, too. Yes. We're everywhere. We're everywhere you want us to be. We're like American Express, <laughs> I guess. Uh, so uh, looking ahead to the next The Many Rules of Film Club, we're going to look at rule number 705 of the many rules of film club, which is that when it's time to start making sense, it's time to start watching the films of Jonathan Demme. So we're going to look at the, the career of Jonathan Demme, the recently deceased great filmmaker, Jonathan Demme, many, many great films. That's going to be next time on the many rules of film club. So thanks for listening and we'll see you next time.